This is Jay David Spurlock, comic book historian Jay David Spurlock, and I'm here with Funny Books with Aaron and Polly to talk about the Dallas Fantasy Fair. rolling my interview with J. David Spurlock, coordinator of the all-new Dallas Fantasy Fair, I wanted to let you know that the second episode of Ghosts of Rainsboro Season 2 hits the Rainsboro feed on Wednesday. If you want to hear it, and I know you do, be sure to subscribe to the Rainsboro feed at iomgeek.com and find it on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Keyword... Rainsboro. I am excited to have Mr. Spurlock on the podcast. He is resurrecting an event near and dear to my heart, the Dallas Fantasy Fair. The DFF was the premier science fiction fantasy and comic book convention in the Southwest during the 80s and mid-90s. IOM Geek, or Ideology of Madness, has a connection with the Dallas Fantasy Fair. In those days, Ideology of Madness was a print publication, or zine as we called it, Uh, largely distributed by mail through venues like Fact Sheet 5. The Dallas Fantasy Fair was one of the few North Texas venues where we shared the print publication. The Dallas Fantasy Fair was an amazing community where creators visited as friends with con-goers. I have fond memories of hanging out with Peter David, Robert Asprin, meeting guys like Roger Zelazny, Paul Anderson, and many others. The return of the DFF is a welcome addition to the Dallas-Fort Worth nerdscape. So today we've got a special guest with us. Uh, We have got uh, J. David Spurlock. He is an award-winning author, historian, educator, advocate for artists' rights, documentary filmmaker, and associate to stellar talents relevant to your interests. Stalwarts such as Frazetta, Neil Adams, Jim Steranko, Joe Kubert, Carmine Infantino, Julia Swartz, Wally Woods, and many, many more. David. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So tell me, how did a nice boy from Tennessee get into this line of work? You know, I had some friends in, uh, in Memphis in the 60s, and I went over to their house, and they had this fabulous comic book collection. And this was in the heart of the 60s. They had all the Marvels. They had Wallywood Thunder Agents. They had some DCs, but it was mostly Marvel. Uh, like one good stack of Hollywood Thunder Agents and some of the Warren, you know, creepy and eerie of Umbrella. And before that, about all I, I, when I was very young, I was into, I was seeing reruns of the Superman TV show and I was seeing the Batman TV show, you know, as it was airing new episodes. And I had a, some, I'd gotten, I guess, for Christmas or birthday some year, I had a uh, a Superman costume, and sometime later I had a Batman costume. So I was into it. Uh, I think my I had a brother that was slightly older than me. The earliest comic he had was the third appearance of Doctor Strange and Strange Tales. And so, you know, if I'd had more money, we would have buying comics, been buying comics earlier, and. I lived in from Memphis. We were in San Antonio for a little while. And there I had a neighbor who had some of the earliest bad paperbacks that was reprinting. You know, at that time, it's about 65. Wood had left mad at the end of 63, beginning of 64. But the paperbacks were coming out all through 64, 65, 66 were packed full of, of Wood's mad work. So I was seeing Wood's Mad Work via the paperbacks, which were just coming out. And then I was seeing his, I started buying at Marvel right when he was leaving Daredevil and went over to Tower to uh, do Thunder Agents. So so I got onto the Wood bandwagon right there in the mid-60s. I turned on to Frazetta about the same time via 
the Warren magazine's creepy and eerie, and later Vampirella. Vampirella came out in '69, and then um, also at the same time, the Conan paperbacks for the Frazetta covers were coming out. And then, but I was I was via my friends in uh, circa '68 in Memphis. They had that was the best collection I had seen anyone up to that time have. And that really turned me on to Marvel Comics in a big way. And at that point, I was like uh, totally hooked on Marvel Comics. And it's kind of ironic because years later, I ended up doing a lot of books, a lot of biographies on famous, uh, working with famous DC people like Carmen Infantino. I worked with him for close to 20 years. Uh, Joe Kubert, I taught at Kubert School and uh, did some books, a couple of books with Joe. Uh, Joe Orlando was very close. Unfortunately, once I moved to New York, uh, Joe Orlando died uh, just about a year after we met. But we were instantly friends, and he got me teaching at the School of Visual Arts in New York, which was founded by uh, Burton Hogarth and one of the greatest uh, commercial art schools in the world. So, yeah, I got, uh, I've been around a little bit. <laughs> You're currently teaching at the University of Texas at Arlington, or is that something that, that is uh, – No, I taught, I, I, taught, I taught there before I went to New York. Oh, did you? I taught – yeah, I taught at UTA from 86 to 96. Oh, wow. And, the, and, I, and I moved to New York in 96. And what did you do? And then in New well, it's, uh, there were various classes. They were all different art classes. There was a history and appreciation of comic book art that I did. There was a general uh, commercial art uh, course I taught. In those days, before desktop computers, you, you, we ordered type. You had to learn how to spec type and order it from typesetters, and then you would do a paste-up, what they call a paste-up mechanical uh, with photostats and the type that you ordered for the printing plates to be made from. So all that technical side, uh, production art, uh, commercial graphic design, I was teaching that, logo designs, uh, that kind of thing. But I was also had a different class, which was a history and appreciation of comic book art. Uh, and Beckett, if you're familiar with Beckett, they were doing sports magazines, and they were actually the inspiration for Wizard Magazine. Um, yeah, some of the people at Beckett were wanting to do a comics-related magazine. Now, the Beckett Sports Magazines had a price guide in the middle of them. And so they would have like a baseball magazine, but in the middle there would be a price guide for baseball cards. Or they'd have a football magazine or, or basketball magazine, and there'd be a price guide in the middle. Well, some of the guys at Beckett wanted to do that for comics, too. But the, the founder of the company, Jim Beckett, he was a jock and he wasn't in the comics and he, he passed on the on the proposal. And then shortly thereafter, Wizard did it. And Wizard even admitted publicly that they got the idea from Beckett Sports Magazines and Wizard started making millions of dollars on it. So after that, Beckett got interested. <laughs> James Beckett got a little bit interested in comics. And I got a call from them and they were thinking about launching a line of of graphic novels, sports related graphic novels. And they wanted me to come over to Beckett and teach my class there. And I did. And they talked to me about heading up their line of graphic novels, but that, that takes us on a, off on a total different <laughs> engine. That all happened before I moved to New York. And then, but once I moved to New York and I was, you know, there were so many people in the comics industry for so many years. You had to live within commuting distance in New York to work in the comics, for faxes and FedEx. And now faxes are practically, you know, antiquated. But that's that's when it wasn't until faxes and FedEx that you could really live anywhere in the country and work for comics. It was difficult before faxes. And there were a few people that did it. But most of them went to New York, got themselves introduced and getting work out while they were in the New York area, and then they would talk the editors into, hey, if I move back to my home state, would you send me work through the mail? And some people did. Some people did that. But generally, for long, for many decades, you had to live within commuting distance in New York. So, so when I moved up there, it gave me much better entrance, you know, to meet people like Joe Orlando, who I became best friends with, and Carmine Infantino, who I became best friends with. I, you know, I, in many ways, orchestrated quite a comeback for Carmine 
after he had left D.C. as editor-in-chief and publisher and president, uh, he didn't make hardly any public appearances. About the only place anyone could see him was if they he was teaching in the School of Visual Arts, and if you paid tuition, you could take his class. But uh, we did his book, The Amazing World of Carmine Infantino, and then I said, you know, it really helped if you would do some appearances. So we started doing conventions after that. I got him to do San Diego Comic-Con. He hadn't been to San Diego Comic-Con in 25 years at that point. He hadn't done any conventions for 25 years. The first time I took Steranko back to San Diego, he hadn't done San Diego in 18 years. And then now Steranko and I got close before I moved up north. Uh, when I started publishing an anthology called Tales from the Edge, uh, when I was in Dallas in the uh, early 90s. And I wanted Stranko involved early on. I started talking to him. It takes a long time to get Stranko on board, but he, he loves brainstorming and coming up with creative ideas and talking about these things. But um, so I was talking to, to Jim before the first issue came out. The first issue came out in 93. And then we ended up doing an all Stranko issue, which was a big hit that had its own standalone title, the Stranko Graphic Prince of Darkness. That was not till like 97, something like that. At that point, I started doing sketchbooks. There were generally no sketchbooks in the comics business until I launched, I created the sketchbook craze. There were, there were actually four that had been done, and there were two of them. There was a Sienkiewicz sketchbook, I believe, came up through Fantagraphics. There was a Kaluta sketchbook. I forget who published that. And there was a George Pratt and a Kent Williams. And those guys were new guys at the time. In the uh, early 90s, George Pratt and, and Kent Williams were just coming into the business. And those both of those were through Tundra with uh, Kevin Eastman's uh, publishing company he had at the time, Tundra. And uh, But there was no line of sketchbooks. It was uh, There were only four. Now, back in the about 1980, there had been two Wally Wood sketchbooks. But those were saddle-stitched, like a comic book, you know, stapled. And they were not perfect bound. They were not distributed to bookstores. They didn't have ISBN numbers. You couldn't go into a bookstore and order them. Uh, they were sold basically like fanzines, you know, or through mail order, you know, or any way that you would get a hold of a fanzine. So the first ones that were actually perfect bound and went to bookstores were the four I mentioned until I launched. I launched in 98 with the Al Williamson sketchbook. We followed with the Neil Adams sketchbook, then the Wally Wood sketchbook, and the uh, Jeff Jones sketchbook. And then by the time, you know, Carmine and I were getting close, and I never pitched a book to Carmine. I mean, he was like Mount Rushmore. <laughs> and But I would show him the books I was doing, and then one day he says, what do you think about doing a book on me? And I said, well, that'd be great. But you've kind of been out of the mainstream for a while. I think I don't think a sketchbook would be the right thing for you. I think for you, we need to do a, a book that really covers your whole career. You know, how you saved Batman from cancellation and it led to the Batman TV show in the 60s. How you saved the entire comic book industry with the creation of the Silver Age in showcase number four with the, the new Flash that he created. Uh, you know, all these landmark achievements he made in his career uh and then so and we did and it was it was a, it was a big hit uh it was, it was not only was it carried in all the comic shops and the bookstores but it's also carried by the sci-fi book club and i remember paul levitt who was uh, uh the co-head of dc at the time in a little public editorial he did saying how long DC had been trying to get into the science fiction book club and been thrown out year after year. They'd be rejected. And he says he looks in his new science fiction book club catalog and there's a Carmine Infantino book from Vanguard, you know? So I, I was very pleased with that. I got some satisfaction <laughs> out of that. So the Dallas fantasy fair is a name from Dallas's dusty nerdy past. Tell me about your experience mm -hmm. with uh, the Dallas Fantasy Fair from uh, years ago. Because I mean, it, it Dallas Fantasy Fair was like the uh, you know comics genre culture event in yeah. in the the Southwest uh, for a number absolutely. of years from like the you know uh, 80s to the yeah. mid 90s, right? Yeah, it actually grew. The original Dallas convention, the first Dallas convention, I believe, was 1968. If I remember correctly, it was called Dallas Con. 
And then by uh, the 69ers, by the second convention, they shortened the name to Decon, D for Dallas. And I was never crazy about the name Decon because there was a bug spray that was the <laughs> brand of bug spray. Right. But, but they called it Decon. That was uh, Larry Herndon, who used to own uh, Forever Young, not Forever Young, used to own Remember When, mm-hmm. uh, was up in, uh, I think, Carrollton. And they had they sold comics and movie posters. A very, very large store that was open for many years. He was he was very involved with the early fandom in North Texas, uh, along with Buddy Saunders of uh, Lone Star Comics and MyComicShop.com fame. And so they were involved with early conventions. And my con- first convention, I believe, it was '73. It was a decon in '73, and I met. Uh, I had mentioned Larry Herndon before, not to be confused with the new guy I'm about to say, Larry Lankford. I met Larry Lankford at my very first convention, and we were the same age. We were both like 13 years old. And so we hit it off immediately. And then there was a, another guy we were very close with was uh, named Ray Files, who used to have a comic shop over, I think it was Grand Prairie or Arlington uh, for a number of years. Ray unfortunately passed away. Uh, but Larry started doing little mini conventions. There was a club around the time in the Dallas area called DASFs, Dallas Area Science Fantasy Society or something like that. And uh, everyone, you know, the real core of Dallas fandom at the time in the early to mid 70s were going to these little DASFs conventions and going to the DCON. And then for some reason, there was a little hiatus of decon a little later in the 70s and then but meanwhile larry langford was doing these little mini conventions up in farmer's branch and his shows were growing so he talked to larry herndon about taking over decon reviving decon and herndon said okay so uh, Langford's first big shows was a revival. I remember him advertising it as Decon Rises or Decon Rises Again with like a, 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 a you know, an EC type core cadaver coming up out of the grave with a tombstone that says Decon Rises Again. <laughs> but with, within a couple, and he had, he had some, we had a couple good shows uh, there. I'm, I first met Jack Kirby uh, at Larry's revival of Decon, I first met Frank Kelly Freeze, the uh, multi-multi Hugo Award-winning science fiction illustrator, and uh, and so I was very close. Larry were, and I were almost like brothers, and there were people who actually thought we were brothers, and so I was involved the whole run, and then I I haven't quite pinpoint exactly when the name changed from decon to fantasy fair, but it was right about 1980. It was either 79. I would I say is either 79 or 80. He changed the name from decon to Dallas fantasy fair. Now that was, when it, it was, ran, that was when it was produced by uh, bulldog productions or was it bulldog? Productions right. That was, all along? Yeah. That's, that's Larry Langford's company, bulldog productions. Yeah. And, and it, it grew and he had multiple shows. He would have, uh, the biggest show was in the summertime. The second biggest show, though, he traditionally had a Thanksgiving uh, weekend show. And and it went very well. And then sometimes he did many cons. He expanded out to Houston, to Austin, to San Antonio. Uh, I remember one story he told me. He started bringing in Stan Lee a lot. Jack Kirby would come in. Gil Kane would come in. Julia Schwartz. I met all these people at, at Larry's shows. And, and he told me about, he had Stan, he'd set up some shows where he could take Stan from one show to another in Texas. And he was flying Stan on Southwest airlines. And, uh, and Stan said to, to Larry, he says, don't ever breathe a word of this to anyone. If it ever gets to DC that I was flying Southwest, I'll never live it down. <laughs> <laughs> so so it kept growing. The Deacon, uh, the uh, fantasy fair kept growing all through the eighties into the nineties. And, uh, like I said, by the early nineties, I was spending a lot of time getting closer and closer with Storanko who had been a, you know, his work was a epiphany to me in the sixties. 
And, you know, the first time I ever published anything was about 1981. I did something that was not, you know, far off from an underground comic called Badge Number One. And I sent a review copy to him. I'd also, Saranko created the official Marvel fan club, Foom, in 1972. And they had a create a character contest. And I entered that contest. And somewhere, Saranko still has all those entries. And, and I'm one of the a number of people who entered that contest that went on to become pretty well-known in the industry. Um, I'm trying to remember some, I, uh, some of the other guys that, that were entered there, but there was a good handful. Steve Root, I believe, was one of the guys that entered it. Um, uh, there, some of the guys went into being publishers, uh, a publisher at DC, Marvel. I'm, I'm trying to remember some of the names. I hadn't thought about that for a while. But anyway, so my earliest direct contact with Sranko was in 73. And then in 81, when I published my, my first uh, uh, publication, I sent him a review copy of that. But it was really about 92 that we became phone buddies and uh, and then by 94, we did our first convention together, which was uh, Dragon Con in Atlanta. And then I booked him into the Dallas Fantasy Fair in 95. And by that point in the early 90s, the fantasy, Dallas Fantasy Fair had grown to be uh, the largest show. And it wasn't that big based on compared to some of the shows we have now. Right. You yeah, know, I we mean, have. I think one of the New, biggest shows New, was like 9,500 people, right? For a Dallas well, Fantasy Fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be, yeah, just short of 10,000, right? Yeah, just short of 10,000. But yeah, to, so your, to your point, I, I mean, the 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 convention community was very different back in those days, right? Uh, you know, and uh, we have a link in that I went to a lot of those Dallas Fantasy Fairs back in the 80s and early 90s. And, you know, it was your, your haven. It was your nerd haven. You know, uh, nerd right. culture was not nearly so ubiquitous back then. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was your safe haven. <laughs> you know, it was you know, right. your, your opportunity to be amongst your people. Whereas, you know, the, we, we didn't have all the Marvel movies and all that kind of fun stuff. So uh, the, those those groups were much smaller. And I remember, you know, I think one of the big differences between cons in those days versus today is that cons today typically take place at a convention center, right? And Mm -hmm. back Mm -hmm. in those days, they were at a hotel. And it wasn't just that, you know, the dealer room was open during the daylight hours. It was that you had stuff going on 24 hours a day in the, in the, uh, in the hotel, you know, and I think that's something that I really miss from the the current conventions. yeah, one mem- one memory that comes back to me was was partying with uh, Robert Crumb, mm-hmm. and Robert Robert Crumb, as a rule, does not do conventions. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the Harvey Awards started in Dallas, and and because and Fantagraphics and Kitchen Sink were regulars, and they used to sweep the Harveys frequently. You know, Marvel and DC were lucky if they'd win a Harvey Award, but but uh, Fantagraphics and uh, and Kitchen Sink were winning a lot of them. And Fantagraphics did have some of I think they were involved in helping to get our crumb here, uh, even though even then, you know, he never really did comic cons, uh, but he did do one. And we were it was still in it would at a point it outgrew uh, hotels. But, yeah, for a long time, there were a couple of different large hotels. There was one up on 635 uh, that it was at for a good while. Uh, but it, it moved around from a couple of different hotels, but ultimately it outgrew it. The biggest one would be at the, uh, the world, the trademark over on Stimmons, but it also, a lot of the activities were in the, what was then the Stouffer, I think it's now called the Renaissance, that kind of elliptical, uh, tower hotel right by there by the trademark. Uh, another thing that was, that was great there was we had a local cable TV show, comic book TV show. Larry King, who is helping me on the current show, was in, was the producer of that show. And I, my memory was it was called the comic book show, as simple as that. Uh, sometimes the on-air regular commentator was Keith Colvin of, of Keith's Comics. And, um, and Lou Mugin, who was a comic book writer and also would write some history articles for some uh, different magazines. He used to be on-air personality, too. But I was one of the frequent... Uh, guest on that show and so and i was you know kind of in, involved 
you know, not too far away, not, not every show, but, you know, I was always kind of handy, you know, if they wanted someone to, uh, to speak on a certain subject, they knew that I was up on, it was common for them to call me, <clears throat> but they would also come to the convention and set up a room with their cameras and interview those guests and they're, uh, happily, some of those interviews are now, you can watch on, on YouTube. Oh, really? Yeah. And so they like, I remember. Yeah, there are some, you know, panel discussions with Gil Kane, with uh, uh, Bern Hogarth, uh, interviews with, uh, you know, uh, Eisner, Will Eisner was, uh, would frequently come down. Uh, Joe Kubert came down at least once, and I know they did an interview with Joe Kubert. I, that's where I first met Joe, is before I moved up north. But as soon as I moved up north, the first work I got in New York was teaching at the Kubert School. And then after I met Orlando, he he courted me away from the Kubert School. He says, we, we want you at School of Visual Arts, and we'll pay you a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> so. And, uh, but, uh, Joe and I stayed close. Joe, Joe and I were, I, you know, were very close and uh, no matter what he was doing, if he wasn't in class and I called him, he always took that call and he was a very busy man, you know, running the school plus doing, you know, comics work and all the things he was involved with. And we worked on some interesting projects together, some, uh, you know, some things, artist rights issues, you know, um, there was a woman who had been at Auschwitz uh, during the Holocaust, and she was forced by Joseph Mangala to do artwork for him. And then years later, she she actually her parents were murdered there, but she survived. Uh, the with the Allies came in, she was still alive, and so she came to America eventually and ended up working for Disney. Years later, she got a call from the Auschwitz Museum that they had some art they thought might be hers and they'd like to fly her out to identify it. And she flew out there and she says, yes, it's mine and I'm ready to pick it up. And they're like, oh, no, 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 we're, we're going to keep it here. Uh, <laughs> and she says, no, it's my art. And, uh, and they said, and they started using the legal argument that, well, uh, Mangala promised you he'd let you live if you did this work for him. And he did let you live. So oh it, yeah, I'm like, and, and like, this is, you're this a museum, is the Auschwitz Museum supposed, telling them this. Exactly. You're supposed to be educating the world on the horrors right. of uh, fascism and Nazism, and you're using the argument that the Nazis and the fascists would use. And so, so wow. Hubert, you know, called me up and told me about this and says, look, I want your help. You know, we want to get some, you know, get people to know about this. And then I started calling some people. I called Stan Lee. I called Steranko. I called uh, Neil Adams and uh, Joe Simon and brought them in. And Neil got very involved. And Neil and Joe Kubert did a comic strip about the whole situation, about her life story and what we were trying to accomplish. And, uh, and it ran in the New York Times. And then later it ran as a backup feature in an uh, a X-Men comic. And then there was actually a motion comic done that Neil also worked on. I did a little voice acting on there. I played a Southern Senator. Uh, and and we did a, a motion comic that was put out by Disney as a bonus feature on an anniversary DVD of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, that had to do with different things. Uh, the Diary of Anne Frank. It was a, it was a re-release of the Diary of Anne Frank, and they had some bonus material in there, educational material about the Holocaust. So, you know, there are projects that like that that aren't just it's you know the comics business entertains people but there is some true culture there and one that's one thing that kind of made the dallas fantasy fair different and that's what we're hoping to bring back i moved back to dallas i was gone for 20 years and i moved back recently to be close to family and whenever i would reconnect to any of my old friends in in uh, the dallas area it was very natural that we would start talking about the old days and, and the convention. And uh, Larry had passed away, and the convention was on hiatus. And so we would reminisce, and people would say, you know, there's some really good big conventions in Dallas now that have built up since then. And it's taken decades for them to build up to the size that Larry had back, you know, in the mid-'90s. But uh, people tend to feel there's 
they don't quite have the heart of the old show. And for whatever reason, it's, it's kind of like a reunion. You know, I'm putting on a party. I'm spending about 60 grand to put on a party. And we're in, inviting everybody to, to come hang out. And, uh, you, know, it's, you know, it's been on hiatus for many years. So we don't expect the turnout that, that we used to get back in the 90s. But we expect to have a good time, and we're bringing in some real superstars that have not been in Dallas in ages. I mean, these are people that really created this material, not only for comics, but material that's gone on to make the blockbuster movie hits. The recent hit, Doctor Strange movie, a key part of that storyline was the death of the Ancient One. Well, the death of the Ancient One was created by Frank Brunner. Frank Brunner is the top living Doctor Strange creator. Steve Ditko created Doctor Strange. Well, he's dead. Uh, after he created it, Stan Lee updated it for, you know, final, added some things to it and polished it up and, and worked, edited the final dialogue. Uh, Stan's not doing convention appearances anymore. He's done a lot of appearances in Dallas, but he's not doing it anymore. He's just too old at this point. And so, uh, Ditko's passed away. Gene Colan took over after Ditko. He's passed away and he, he used to do the old fantasy fair. That's where I first met Gene and we be- became very close and but uh, Frank Brunner came in and totally revived, revitalized Doctor Strange in the '70s, and for probably at least a half a million readers, his version is to this day in their mind that's the definitive version that what he did in the '70s. So he hasn't been to Dallas in quite some time. Uh, I met him at a decon in '76. And uh, I think he did come back one time after that, uh, maybe. There was a show downtown at the Sheraton in the early 90s. I forget who put that show show on. It wasn't a a fantasy fair. I think he did do one of those, but that's about it. Mike Royer, you know, Jack Kirby is the greatest superhero, particularly superhero American comic creator there is. Everything, basically, the other than Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, which, Dit- which Ditko was very involved with, practically everything else in Marvel, uh, X-Men, The Avengers, Thor, Fantastic Four, The Hulk, uh, those were all basically Jack Kirby creations. You know, Jack would bring the idea in and pitch it to Stan, and Stan would say, yeah, yeah, I want to use that. And then Stan would start brainstorming, you know, what could he bring to it? You know, you know, what ideas did he have? But those initial ideas were, were regularly Jack's. Well, Jack's favorite artistic collaborator, uh, once he, they met each other, was Mike uh, Royer. They worked together at D.C. on New Gods, Forever People, Commandy, uh, just about Mr. Miracle, just about everything Jack did at D.C., and then when Jack returned to Marvel in the mid seventies and started doing Black Panther and Captain America again, who he created Captain America with Joe Simon in nineteen forty one. But at that point Mike Royer was his favorite anchor. And Mike hasn't been here a long time and a lot of people don't know it. They know him from, from working with Jack Kirby. But Mike Royer is a top quality Disney artist. He is the he is Disney's certified top Tigger artist. They actually did a documentary with Royer to teach the other Disney artists how to properly do Tigger. He is like the official top Tigger artist, but he's also, you know, the great Kirby collaborator. Uh, I represent the Wally Wood estate, so we're going to have a nice uh, uh, remembrance and of Wally Wood and a lot of material that a lot of people don't get to see often. We've got Frank Frazetta Jr.'s coming in. There is no Frazetta family member. Uh, Frank Sr. did not do conventions as a rule. He did a couple in New York. He did one in San Diego, and that was about it in his whole career. He just shied away from conventions. And, uh, you know, his autograph sells for $200, $250. So one reason they shied away from conventions is he didn't want to seem rude by turning down people for free autographs. And they didn't want to have to quote, you know, the rates they were getting, but those were the rates they got, you know, it was 200, 250 just for an autograph. That's how sought after, you know, anything by Frazetta was. So, but Frank Jr. now has the Frazetta Museum in Pennsylvania. He's never been to Dallas. He's going to come down and he's, we're going to put on, you know, some representation for Frazetta's legacy in the Frazetta Museum. And then I got Steranko. Steranko hasn't been here in, in quite a few years. And he's that guy's bigger than ever, and oh, yeah. you know he's huge on Twitter. Some, <laughs> yeah, some, some some people think it's uh, some of my PR savvy over the last 
quarter of the century, and I, I'll take a pat on the back. I'm not <laughs> I'm not above taking a pat on the back every now and then, but uh, so but I've definitely been working with with Jim now for for uh, 25 years, and uh, and I wanted to see him back in Dallas, and here's the place to do. It. We've got. Um, George Lowe, the voice of uh, Space Ghost. We have uh, Bob Camp, the co-creator of Ren and Stimpy. Uh, Bob was the director, writer. He wrote songs, Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy, Log. Just about any song that ever came on Ren and Stimpy was written by Bob Camp. And he's one of the most entertaining people you could meet. He did he did voice acting on there. He can do he, He'll do voices of the characters. He leads fans and sing-alongs to the songs from Ren and Stimpy. They do raffles. You can buy a ticket for a dollar or two and, and have a chance to win a signed uh, print or possibly even original drawing. Uh, so they're, uh, Bob and uh, his vice president of fun, uh, Michelle Ford, uh, they're very entertaining people, very fun people to hang out with. Steranko is like a character himself out of a hard-boiled detective novel. You know, he's like, you know, every word that comes out of his mouth is practically written by Mickey Spillane. And uh, so, <laughs> so I mean, it's a unique experience. You know, these you can go to a lot of conventions. You see a lot of artists sitting doing sketches. These guys don't just sit there doing sketches. You know, they're, they're some, of the, some of them are, are very entertaining. We've got... Um, you know, one of the actors from uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So we've got uh, uh, Arthur Sudam is the top zombie artist. Uh, and uh, and so he's there. So we've got, if you're into horror, we have, you know, horror represented. If you're into anime, we've got uh, Ben Dunn and Antarctic Press. We've got some anime stuff there. We've got one dealer who does uh, weaponry that is all based on anime cartoons. So that's pretty cool. We've got an exhibitor uh, that has sells carnivorous plants, flesh-eating plants, you know, like uh, uh, the little shop of horrors. But this is real. You can buy, you know, I've known since I was a kid about the Venus flytrap, but it turns out that there's, there's quite a few plants that eat animals. And so uh, I'm very interested to see their exhibit. So there's a lot of, a lot of fun stuff there, some, some well-authors. And uh, so we're going to put on a show. I kind of see the whole thing as a party. We will have an official party Saturday night. The official hotel, of the, the convention's at the Irving Convention Center. But the official hotel is Nilo, which is just up the street. And if you, if you stay at the Nilo, you can park there, and there's going to be a shuttle over to the convention center so you don't, wouldn't have to pay for the parking at the convention center. Or if you stay next door at the Holiday Inn, I think you can just walk over and, and not have to pay for parking at the convention center. Uh, ticket r- prices are very reasonable. Saturday's $20, Sunday's 15 We have some discounts, a student discount. Uh, anyone who is of school age can get in for half price, so that's as low as $750 on a on a Sunday admission. We have free admission for kids 10 and under if they come with an, a, a paid adult. Uh, Heritage Auction is the biggest auction house there is, especially when it comes to collectibles. They're doing kind of like, you know how on Antiques Roadshow, they, uh, you get like appraisals, you bring in something, they mm-hmm. tell you what it's worth. Yeah. Well, they're going to be doing that. So anyone who comes to the Fantasy Fair can get free appraisals. Now, you'll see on Antiques Roadshow, you'll see things like Indian rugs or furniture or jewelry. They're not doing those things. We're doing pop culture stuff. They're doing uh, music memorabilia, records, posters. They're doing movie memorabilia, movie posters, any kind of movie posters. If someone showed up with Dorothy's uh, Ruby Slippers, you know, they can appraise those. And uh, comic books, art, fine art, illustration art, comic book art, any kind of original art they're appraising, and they're offering money. If it's, they'll tell you what it's worth, and then they'll say, we're interested in auctioning that for you, or we could just buy it from you. And, and if they want to auction it, if it's something that's of uh, a good value, they may offer you, you know, in advance. They may say, look, there's no question in our mind, not only is this going to sell, but it's going to sell for good money, we can give you an advance on everyone else. They're, they're prepared to hand out money there at the show. Also, Buddy Saunders is probably the world's largest uh, seller of comic books. 
Uh, he used to have the chain uh, Lone Star Comics for many years. Now he sells mostly through via the internet and mail order as mycomicshop.com. This guy's been around since 1960, and he's been doing mail order selling of comics since 19 since the early 60s, and he's coming with a with a pocket full of money looking to buy stuff. So uh, anyone, including dealers, if there's dealers uh, looking to set up, they can contact us. The best way to contact us is through our Facebook page. And, and put a uh, link in the show notes. Yeah, we've got we've got a few booths left, and so like if a dealer you know doesn't know well oh you know this is a revival of an old show we don't know what the turnout's going to be you know but the thing is whatever they don't do retail they've got Buddy there ready to buy whatever they want to sell you know wholesale and Buddy's like hey you know I could do a ten thousand deal ten thousand dollar deal with any of these guys you know and they'll go home very happy. So, uh, and he's not just buying comics, he's buying magazines, he's buying pulps, he's buying paperbacks, he's buying uh, any kind of comic character collectible like Slurpee cups, if you remember the old Marvel and DC Slurpee cups, you know, things like that, anything that's kind of American comics or uh, a superhero oriented toys, collectibles. So there's, uh, we're going to have, uh, uh, we haven't finalized all the details, but it looks like we're going to have a kid uh, area where kids can hang out and color and, uh, and, and play with, uh, just with other younger kids around there. Um, so there's some cool stuff. Sounds great. I, you know, I, one of the, my favorite things about the old Dallas fantasy fair was the panels. What, uh, are you, are you, are you looking at your panel program? What, what do you have in mind? We we are now that we've got the show floor fairly well ironed down. Like I said, we have room for maybe six more uh, exhibitors uh, if somebody wants to contact us for a booth. We've got room, but but lately I've been spending most of my time kind of figuring out where we're going to put everyone on this in this floor. Uh, I've got a friend, Alex Grant, runs a comic book historians group on Facebook. And he's a really knowledgeable guy. He calls me his mentor, so he must be good. And <laughs> so uh, he's going to fly in from uh, California. And he's a lot of the panels, if I were a guest at a convention, I'd be moderating a lot of panels. But I'm going to be so tied up, you know, taking care of everybody and looking after everybody. So I wanted someone that I that was a, a good historian to come in to help out. He and his buddy, Bill Field, uh, who's I be I think Bill's in uh, in Austin. He's going to come up from Austin, and Alex is going to fly in from California, and um, they're going to moderate a lot of the comics related uh, panels. I will, because of my long history and and close relationship with Stranko, I will do the Stranko because we're, like I said, we're kind of celebrating our 25th anniversary working together right now. So I'll probably moderate this Renko myself, but uh, Alex will handle all the other comics-related uh, panels, including, you know, we'll do a Frank Brunner panel and a Bob Camp panel. Animation, we're going to have some some various animators. And so, in, in well, like I said, not only is Mike Royer famous for working in comics with Jack Kirby, but also working with Disney. So uh, we're probably going to put a group animators panel. Frank Brunner, a lot of people don't know it, but Frank left the comics business and moved out to California and worked in animation. Uh, he worked for every animation studio on the West Coast. He worked on the, X, the original X-Men cartoon. He was the basically the head uh, artist on the second. There was a, a second Johnny Quest series in the 80s. And he was he was he was the top guy on that on that uh, second Johnny Quest series. Uh, so he's uh, and then and then Bob Camp he's most famous for Ren and Stimpy, and that's where a lot of his humor came in, his unique humor. But he worked on Thundercats. He worked on he's he's more recently he's been working on SpongeBob. And so I mean these guys are long time very uh, successful animators. And so, you know, I want to put together a, a really strong animation um, uh, panel as well. And then we could get, uh, haven't finalized it yet. We're just now starting to, you know, tighten up our, our panel list. But uh, with some of these voice actors, too, because Bob Camp did voice act, has done voice acting. And then we also have uh, 
uh, George Lowe from uh, Space Ghost. And just, I just think, you know, what can be cooler than talking to George Lowe when he's talking in a Space Ghost voice? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's great. Are you talking Maybe. to Bob Camp? And he starts talking in a voice from Ren and Stimpy. Yeah, if you could get those guys to record your outgoing message on your uh, on your cell phone, that would be ideal, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. or or goes regular voice. If you've right. seen him, uh, if you've seen any of these documentaries yeah. on the history of comics, including we worked on one for PBS a couple years ago. It was called uh, "Superheroes: A Never Ending Battle." It was a two part documentary. And uh, Jim and I, I, I got, a, I booked a bunch of guys into that. Uh, Joe Kuber, Carmine Infantino, shortly before Carmine passed away, Steranko, and on. And we've also done documentaries for the Discovery Network, uh, the History Network, and frequently, Steranko is the best guy on camera because he looks good on camera. He's got a great speaking voice, and he's also very knowledgeable. You know, he wrote some of the first histories ever written on the history of comics way back in 1970, 1971. And so, so he can speak, he can speak as a historian. He can speak as a, uh, a guy who worked a very notable creator within, in there. You know, if you're not familiar with, for those who might not be familiar with Sharanko, there would be no agents of shield TV show if it weren't for strike. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. You know, uh, there was he was very he was the top shadow book cover illustrator of all time. Uh, he helped George Lucas and Steven Spielberg create Indiana Jones. Uh, he worked with Francis Ford Coppola on uh, three films, including the the Bram Stoker Dracula film. And when Francis hired him, he hired him as a concept man. He didn't hire him to do pre production art or anything like that or storyboards. He didn't hire him as an artist. He, uh, he hired him as an ideal man. He says, I want you to tell me how can I make this different from any any Dracula film that's ever been made. You know, there had been probably 50 Dracula films made before Francis's, and he wanted his to be different, and it was, you know, and, and it was, and to this day, it still stands as, as one of the most unique and visually interesting and colorful uh, 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 Dracula films. And a lot of those ideas like uh, the castle design was not your your uh, traditional castle design. They had cars. They had like Model A's in that in that film. You know the uh, the the fashions. Uh, a lot of those ideas came from Stranko. You know the uh, Dallas Fantasy Fair is uh, Saturday and Sunday, November twenty fourth and twenty fifth. We'll have all the information on our website. Uh, you know, listing all the contact information, ticket information, that kind of thing. But where can they find you on Facebook? I am. We are posting there about the Fantasy Fair on the Vanguard page. But there, if you search on Facebook for Fan- Dallas Fantasy Fair, a couple of different things will come up. There's there's an there's a couple of events pages. You know, all the pages on Facebook are broken up into a couple of categories. You could have a group, you could have a, a company page, you could have an event. There is a fantasy fair event. There's actually two of them up there, and then there's also a group. That's all in capital letters, but that's mostly nostalgia about the old shows. There is news in that group about the current show. But that group is mostly people who went to the old shows, like to reminisce the old shows. But the page, not the event, not the group, but the page, uh, Dallas Fantasy Fair, the one that's got about a thousand followers, that's that's the real page. And it's, I believe it's uh, it's probably some the, the URL is probably something like you know Facebook slash Dallas Fantasy Fair info. Excellent. Well, we'll have that link in our show notes. David, thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure, and bring all your friends. I'm looking forward to seeing you. And, Absolutely. Uh, and we'll have a good time. Oh, as I said, there's going to be the official party Saturday night at the Nilo Hotel. We're going to have drink specials, a nice view of the pool. I don't know if it'll be too cool to get in the pool, but, uh, you know, we, we got some party people here. Uh, uh, Simon Bisley, uh, famous for Lobo, and uh, he. He's, he's something else. He's like a walking Viking that likes to party. I mean, uh, like I said, we've got some characters uh, attending the show as guests, and uh, yeah, and so that that party should be really nice. There's a pool table there. Uh, we've got uh, drink specials. There's food. There'll be a full menu, and it's a very 
hip uh, hotel. It's a you know New York style loft style hotel. One of my favorite memories from the Dallas Fantasy Fair of old was uh, drinking with the guests after the event. Yeah, I, I, there's just nothing better than that. In fact, uh, well, there were a lot of bathtubs full of beer. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you know uh, having drinks with Robert Asprin, uh, you know, there at the yeah. at the Dallas Fantasy Fair was it was is just one of my fondest memories. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, that, unfortunately, the convention center doesn't want us to have alcohol right. show floor. But uh, we thought it was important. Some people said, "Oh, you know, I I figured you would launch at a big hotel because because the socializing is so important." But you know, it's going to be it's going to be intimate enough that we can do some serious socializing at the convention, even though it's in a convention center, but we want to make everyone feel at home there at the Nilo hotel. That is our official hotel and we will have a a party. So if anyone who has uh, admission to the convention will get the, the drink specials at the Nilo uh, all weekend and particularly uh, the official party Saturday night, and we'll have we're going to have some live entertainment there too. It's going to be great. That's terrific. Well, again, thank you, David. Uh, the event is the Dallas Fantasy Fair. It's at the Irving Convention Center in beautiful scenic Texas, uh, just outside of Dallas Fort Worth International Airport, just outside of uh, Dallas. Um, the event is November 24th, November 25th, the Saturday and Sunday of Thanksgiving weekend. You're going to be full of turkey on Friday. You've got plenty of time to, to work through your trip to fans. Come on out to the Dallas Fantasy Fair, November 24th, 25th. Again, thanks, Dave. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Podcast theme music graciously provided by Mark Andrew Pope. For more information, visit markandrewpope.com. Funny Books with Aaron and Polly is a production of ideologyofmadness.com. No Spider-Man clones were harmed in the production of this podcast.